Very nice, okay. We're running out of time, we're running out of time. Running out of time. So thank you for your kind introduction. Man, what's with the Monday madness? This is crazy. Did you sleep all weekend? Just slept, right, didn't do any homework? Oh, homework, I mentioned it now, the stress kills the mood. No. Great to see everybody. Karen and I were in the great state of Wisconsin all weekend. Had a great time. We were in Milwaukee um, to start with, and that was a good good time. But the uh, best part was yesterday we had a chance to go to uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, be at Life Church yesterday with Sean and Sonny Hennessy. And it was a great, great time. I tell you what, the difference between three degrees and 28 degrees is like a miracle. Uh, I woke up on Friday or Saturday and it was three and I had to go out to the car to do something and the wind was howling in Wisconsin. And by the next day, it had risen to 28 and I felt like I had got on a plane and gone somewhere on vacation. Uh, that's kind of my threshold, somewhere between 3 and 28, where I can function and be happy. But anyway, good to see everybody here. Welcome to all of our, our guests, especially with fine arts. It's the best program in the country uh, that you are not going to get the blend of the professional uh, side of music, learning music, not the tricks of the trade, but the tools of the trade. You can't hack your way to greatness. You gotta take time to learn the tools before you learn the tricks. And so they teach an unbelievable depth uh, of music, whether it is uh, the learning of music, the scholarship of music, music business, whatever it may be. But you also get that front end worship uh, vibe to this generation um, that only you can interpret all these wonderful kingdom things in the scripture, you're interpreting it to your generation through the writing of new music, through your sound, and through your, that I, I can only sit on the front row and just marvel at how you are doing this. It's phenomenal. So you get every spectrum, especially in fine arts, the theater program. I was with a young lady yesterday um, who's being heavily recruited to a theater program back east, and by the time lunch was done, we had flipped her. She's coming. I'm, I'm telling you, I'll be shocked if she's not here. All I did was talk about uh, the king of the Cheerio commercial this summer, Wayne Matthews. <laughs> Wayne, wait till I show you the clip of this young lady. So make sure you find me. I got I to show you this. So anyway, great to see everybody here today. Take your Bibles. Let's go to one of the smallest books in the Bible. Uh, it's found toward the end of the Bible. It's the book of Philemon. Um, I chose Philemon when I was in college to do my big hermeneutical project because it was a tiny book. Um, anybody ever pick something based on scale? Like, uh, like hey, because part of the hermeneutics, you had a passage. I had seven verses out of this particular text that I had to write 200 pages on seven verses of Scripture um, back in the day. And, but you also had to do uh, a survey of the whole book. So why would I pick something out of Matthew or Luke um, when I could pick the book of Philemon? Little did I know that the message of this book would mark me and stay with me my whole life. And I have probably referenced the characters and this, the nuances of this story 
about as much as any story I have spoke on in, in my life, in scripture. It kind of shows up no matter what I'm teaching. Something from this wonderful little book appears. So we've got just a few moments here. Let's read these verses. Philemon chapter one, uh, verses 10 through 19 from the New American Standard Bible. Here we go. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Now this wasn't a biological child and I've used this text. I've probably spoken from Philemon I think three times in the two years I've been here. Um, Onesimus is not a physical, uh, biological child. He's not even little. It's a grown man um, who is running from truth. Um, the truth of his own responsibility. He was an escapee back in the day how the penal system worked and corrections worked. If I stole something from you, the judge would assign me as your slave. If I stole, this wasn't kidnapping, which is forbidden, obviously, throughout all of time, history, and scripture and theology. This was a different kind of what Paul would call a slave. It was somebody who was incarcerated that was working off time. So he had stolen something and was serving his time under uh, someone named... Uh, Philemon. But really the story is not about Philemon. Uh, he's a character in a distant place. The letter's written to him, but it's really the narrative of the Apostle Paul, this old, older guy who's at the twilight of his life, who's writing still, you know, eight uh, books of the Bible are being written from this stage of his life. It's fascinating that some of the greatest truth that we sit here, inspired truth of the word happened um, really at the later stages, the twilight where he could really, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pen with accuracy his letters. And so while he's writing a lot of the New Testament, he's also uh, coming across accidentally, we don't know how they met, uh, this young guy named Onesimus who is, he's on the run and he's just living now in the big city of Rome, getting lost in the bustle of the city. But God has his way of finding us, hiding you know, even in a busy crowd, he can find us. And he's always working and the angels are always kind of guiding and giving you a shot for something better. And so Onesimus was um, unaware that the Holy Spirit was setting him up to meet an older guy who really wasn't checking out on his assignment quite yet. That to his final breath, he would be looking for people the way the Lord had found him on the road to Damascus. Even though he had accomplished, uh, I mean, he had raised people from the dead, had touched thousands, moved cities, and now he's, he's isolated, he's incarcerated, uh, partially under house arrest, then a more uh, traditional arrest the second time, in chains. He comes across this guy named Onesimus, and now he's writing back to Philemon because he's led the guy to the Lord, he's discipled him, and now they're bonded like family. That's kind of the way it's supposed to work. You get into these relationships, it's not a transaction where we're going to give you some knowledge, you're going to get a degree, and we go our merry way. Something bigger is happening in our lives because we're Christ followers. This, this wonderful um, interaction between the proven life and the promising life, which is really a picture of college, uh, is the book of Philemon. People who are trying to figure it out. Some people trying to get lost in the crowd. Some people trying to find their way. They collide with people that they've never met before in these classrooms and leaders and people like myself and other ones. And you wonder what's going to become of this collision that we are having. What's, what's really going on here? I think this book tells it perfectly. 
I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless, but now is useless. It's my favorite line. I'll, I'll say it till the day I die. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're totally useless. <laughs> you're useless. <coughs> now listen to me. See, I've tapped into something. I know we're not supposed to put each other down, but the Apostle Paul is saying, I met this guy who was useless. He was useless to you, but now is both useful both to you and me. So here's the thing that's happening in this formation, in this awarding of this wonderful degree, is that we're going from useless to useful. That's the hope. Because to be honest, when I met the Lord, I could hoop a little bit and I could do some different stuff back in the day. But I was really, for the larger picture of life, I was useless. I really was not going to be a contributor. I was going to spend my life as a consumer. I would be a taker, not a builder. Because I was just not making the pivot from adolescence to maturity very well. And time was running out in my life in which everybody did everything for me. They showed up to educate me. Somebody prepared the food for me at lunch and they just told me where to go. And all these people were doing everything for me as, a, as an adolescent. Now I was shifting into adulthood where fewer people notice me. And that's part of the pain of getting older is that fewer people notice you. When you're younger, it's a wonderful season because the light's kind of shining bright. You might not feel that, but all these people have given their careers their life, their one life assignment for you. Think about that. So it's a, it's a powerful window in life. But what's really happening is you're going from useless to useful. So don't be discouraged that you're useless. Um, we all are useless until the Lord starts to put the new components into our life and suddenly we shift from useless to useful. That's, that's the hope. He goes, he's useful. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. Very powerful Hallmark card here. I'm sending my heart. Is this really the way two men talk? I like this, this. I'm sending my heart to you. Could it really be that legit of a love story, a kingdom love story between this older brother in the Lord, this older apostle who leads this guy to Christ and helps him with his direction and puts responsibility into his heart? that they bond in the process <clears throat> and he carries them. Remember this, be very careful in life to sever a valuable relationship. You know why? Because a piece of you will be leaving with them. That's why you don't blow off people. That's why you invest in one another and we don't just delete each other from one another's lives. We fight like crazy for the success of the relationship because when you leave, there's a piece of me leaving with you. That's what Paul's saying. This is more than a transaction. I have imparted my very being like a biological child, but in a spiritual context, catching this young man in his late teens or early 20s, I don't know how old Onesimus was, but there was a great gap between Paul and him. But they found some common ground and a common bond, and when he sends him back to live the responsible life, to live the life of a steward, 
a piece of him dies on the inside. And I think that's what happens. I've only been to two of our graduations, actually three. I, I witnessed one while I was still president in waiting. And I will tell you what I've learned quickly about my job is that when you graduate and leave, a piece of the faculty and staff, their heart leaves. It really is that emotional for them when you succeed and begin to steward your life. It's powerful. And you carry a piece of them with you and you leave this place. I can't wait. You ever remember in high school, the guy, I can't wait to get out of here. Can't wait to get out of here. Remember that person? <coughs> Couldn't wait to get out. And then for the next five years, they're on the front lawn of the high school throwing Frisbees because they can't leave the place. Remember that person? They hung out at the high school like, aren't you supposed to be gone now? Because a piece of us starts to glue to these settings of learning and transformation. Let's watch it real quick here. I send him back, sending my heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but of your own free will. We'll, we'll stop there. I'm going to put up here another slide of this idea from the useless to the useful. So this transfer of the proven to the promising, what does it look like down the road? I think when I pray for your usefulness to emerge and for me to remain useful for the kingdom, I've, I've condensed it to four questions. I've never shared these four questions. I've put these on social media before and I've taught this in different leadership settings, but I never brought it into the auditorium. And I just want to give you these four questions of the useful life. I think these are four critical questions. Here we go. Number one, uh, can I remain honorable when tempted? Number two, can I remain composed when humiliated? Number three, can I remain loving when wounded? And number four, can I remain enthusiastic when corrected? I reflected, just leave that up there if you I want to walk you through these four questions of the useful life. Remember, we're going from useless to useful. The useful life, I think, is marked by the successful answering of these four questions. First of all, can I remain honorable when tempted? When I look at temptation, I, th I think of Jesus in the iconic beginning portions of his public ministry. After he's baptized in the Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3, he then is sent in chapter 4 to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. I don't know when the devil showed up, but I think the devil probably showed up after a period of his fasting, when his tank was at the lowest, when he was craving the most, 40 days. Somewhere in that intensity, when the temptation would make more sense, Satan shows up and begins to offer Jesus the world. His eyes, all that he sees, um, all that he, his flesh could crave and remember, he offered him the bread of the enemy, and he said, no, the Father's will is my bread. And remember, I know that temptation is not sexual, but the carnal nature, lust, has to do with appetite. And after maybe 36 days or 37 days of not eating, if you threw Bathsheba or a burger at me, I'd probably choose the burger over Bathsheba. My body would be needing more of the burger. So when Jesus said no to the hamburger, he was saying no to the lust of the flesh at the low ebb of, of where his cravings were the highest and his resiliency was the lowest. He was able to say no to the flesh when he turned down the bread. 
He wasn't going to prove that he's Jesus by throwing himself off the temple and having angels catch him midair just to prove that he was the biblical savior. The devil was tempting him to prove himself, the boastful pride of life. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And just because you're tempting me to prove that I'm God. And, and I'm not going to bow down to you so I can have the lust of the eyes, all this world. So when you look at 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 17, 1 John 2, 15 and 17, it says all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. All of that was in the temptation of Jesus' moment with Satan in Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus wins. He says, no, no, no. And remember, he had just been filled with the Holy Spirit Modeling it for us when the dove came down in the Jordan River, it's that picture of the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples and they all had fire over their head and they were speaking in heavenly languages. Jesus had his moment in the Jordan that was the first um, window into that understanding when the, the dove came down and remained on him, it says in Luke's gospel. And then he goes into the wilderness. At that moment, Jesus receives the affirmation of the Father. It's a very, very powerful, powerful moment. It's interesting that the first syllables out of Jesus' mouth when the Holy Spirit is resting on him is no, no, no. So being spirit-filled, spirit-empowered begins with our ability to say no to sin, not prophesy. The fundamental purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to say no to sin, not to release our gifts. He says the first three things is no, no, no. I'm not going to do it. No devil. Now, get this. Jesus confronts Satan at the beginning of his ministry. I may have shared this before when I talk about being honorable when tempted. Jesus says no to Satan at the beginning of the ministry because he is defeating Satan privately before he would defeat him publicly. That's where this whole thing starts. That's what this is about. This learning of the word, this fullness of the spirit, this encouragement of biblical community so that we can be the only, not just Christian in the room, but we can be the only Christian in the wilderness. And it's just us and the enemy. Can I say no to Satan privately before I use my talents, calling, and giftings to defeat him publicly? Three years later, he would openly defeat Satan on the cross, but he privately defeated him back here. So for me, can I remain honorable when tempted simply means can I say no to Satan privately before I defeat him publicly or professionally? Can I win in my personal life? That's going to be critical for all of us in this room. And my biggest decisions, I'm 57, but my biggest decisions are in front of me. Most of the most painful failures I've witnessed in my life happened in leaders' leaders' lives who are my age, not 20, my age, that caused the, the most, like a tidal wave of pain in people's lives. I think about that all the time. I, I got my biggest decisions are in front of me, not behind me. So I've got to remain honorable when tempted. I want to be useful to the kingdom. Here's that second question. Can I remain composed when humiliated? We oftentimes talk about take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said to take up the cross. What was the cross of Jesus? The cross of Jesus was just a couple simple things. It was being wrongly accused. It was going through public humiliation 
and it was having your friends betray you. I'm wrongly accused, I'm embarrassed in front of people, and my friends have left me. If you really cook down, when Jesus was crucified, that's what was happening. So I talk to people all the time. They go, man, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Now I don't love the Lord. Why don't you love the Lord? Well, man, my friends have turned their back on me. and I got embarrassed. And, um, and they're saying stuff about me that's not true. So I, I'm not serving Jesus under these conditions. <laughs> but you've memorized the verse where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. What do you think taking up the cross is? It's three things. It's being humiliated publicly for something. It is having your friends turn their back on you. And it's somebody blaming you for something you didn't do. Your ability to hold steady and hang in there, not reviling back, but being like Jesus who uttered no threats while he was being wrongly accused, totally betrayed, and publicly humiliated. Public humiliation's tough. When I was in high school, I could dunk a basketball very quick. So as a sophomore, and I was dunking. I put some stickum on my hands. I was dunking. Man, the juniors and seniors had it up to here with me. Every moment I got, man, look at this, boom, 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 boom. It was unbelievable. Sometimes my knee's a little sore, and my kids will say, Dad, you're getting old. I say, no, man, when you live... When you live above the rim for that long, you know, sometimes you just gotta, it's part of the effects when you live above the rim. So one day, the team was so sick of me, we were gonna go out at a big, uh, the big assembly, and the big game was that night, and we are gonna run out in the assembly in our sweats and uniforms and we we're going to do layups and dunks in front of the whole school and I was I, I it was my idea I just set it all up to show off so they they bought it oh, it should be awesome so we're in the locker room and they go who wants to go first well I'll go first because I was just going to fly do my MJ fly kapow in front of 2,000 students boom the music starts I go the length of the court 2,000 of my peers I take off for some reason. I, I, I angled it wrong. I don't know what I did. Kaboom, I missed the dunk. Came down sideways, took two steps, and fell on my butt. Looked behind me. Not one player was on the court. They let me run out there by myself. I was on my fanny in front of 2,000 of my high school peers. They were laughing at me like... Well, I sat there for a second and I go, but something inside me says, dude, that was self-inflicted. You deserved this. So I, went, I ran off the court, went in the bathroom. I was realizing, did you just do what I think you did? And I found a bag and I cut out some eyes and I kind of wore that bag over my head into class. Everybody's laughing. We're having a good time. Laughed at myself. Oh my gosh, was I humiliated. It's a funny little story, but people for similar scenes like that don't quite recover from that. I got, for another message, I'll tell you how I got through a little bit of that level of humiliation. Humiliation's a horrible feeling. That heat that rushes at you. You've been rejected, you've been overlooked, you've boasted, and it's not true. If I have our musicians come up. Um, 
But how do I handle humiliation? The humiliation of not being chosen or the humiliation of showing off and falling on your face. It's going to be one of the defining moments of your usefulness. I have come to realize that humiliation is part of carrying the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that was self-inflicted. That's hoop. It wasn't a spiritual assignment. But there's been times in my life, in my adult formative years, where I thought something was going to happen. I kind of boasted, and it blew up in my face. And I feel that heat, that embarrassment. And then I start reorganizing all of my Christian faith. It gets, everything's on the table in that moment of humiliation. When you're humiliated, you are at one of the closest moments to what Jesus experienced on the cross. Here's your third question you gotta answer. Can I remain loving when wounded? Woundedness typically happens from a friend. Strangers can say all they want against me, but when a friend that I've trusted, yielded, made myself vulnerable to, uh, violates that, it goes very deep. And remember, you can't just close the wound, you have to cleanse the wound. If you close the wound before you cleanse the wound, then the infection will do what the swipe of the knife could not. When the Good Samaritan found the one on the roadside, he put both oil and wine into the wound. The, oil, the wine hurt, hurt like heck. Winced away from the pain of the wine going into the open wounds because that sting was the killing of the bacteria. Then the oil was poured in there to soothe the pain. So sometimes in life we're wounded. We don't just need oil in the wound to make us feel better. Sometimes we need some wine to be poured into the wound because it's killing the infection not just bringing relief. Woundedness can reorder your entire trajectory in life. You're gonna be wounded here on campus. It's gonna start because the Lord is building that resiliency in your life, your ability to come back from the wound. Lastly, because we're out of time here is, can I remain enthusiastic when corrected? Don't you love being corrected? Somebody comes up and says, hey, can I talk to you? (laughs) No. Because I've had those talks. I'm not in the mood for a talk. I had a guy named Dennis Smith, man. When he would say, hey, can we go for a walk? I said, oh my gosh. I was a young youth pastor. Here it comes. And we'd go some obscure place. He'd put two chairs right in front. I go, it's like the electric chair. I know what you're doing. This is going to be an awful thing. And he would sit there and he, he would say, hey, you know, we, we just arrived. The youth choir just arrived and you got off the bus and was talking to somebody and everybody else was carrying their luggage and helping. And you, you didn't help anybody. You didn't even get your own luggage. You know, this isn't about you, Scott, right? I was 21, like, <laughs> I hated being corrected. But I would take, go for a walk Take a deep breath and, and think of Jesus, him on the cross, while being reviled, he reviled not. And the Holy Spirit would help me regain my enthusiasm. This idea that it just pulls the plug, man, if somebody corrects you, even when most of their correction is off base. I've been corrected, 90% of what you're saying is wrong. And the Holy Spirit would say, yeah, focus on the 10% that's true, dude. I'll take care of the 90%. They're a human being. They see it wrong. They feel it wrong. They're saying it wrong. But you know there's truth to what they're saying. 
And the devil wants you to focus on the 98% that got wrong and not see the 2% that is you. Own the 2%, focus on it. Let the Holy Spirit restore your enthusiasm. Because you can't just walk around pouting after you get corrected for the next several days. People don't want to be around that. It always hurts. All discipline's tough. But man, go for a walk. Think about Jesus and his goodness in your life. And let the Holy Ghost put that enthusiasm for living and leading back even after you've been corrected, friends. Can I remain honorable when tempted? Okay. Can I remain composed when I'm humiliated? Can I remain loving when wounded? And can I remain enthusiastic when corrected? Somewhere, stick that on your phone. I'll post that on Instagram today. Just as a quick reminder, keep them nearby your life. Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful Monday. Thank you for this university, Jesus. Lord, help us, Lord, to stay focused, Lord, to keep the distractions um, at a minimum. And Father, we love you today, Jesus. We thank you today, Jesus. If you want to stick for a few minutes, they're going to sing the Trimble song again. These altars are open. If you want to wrestle through one of these questions, wrestle through. Have a great day. Do your homework. Read your Bible. Stay close to Jesus. Great to see everybody. God bless.